0: Welcome to Race and Democracy, a podcast on the intersection between race, democracy, public policy, social justice, and citizenship. All right. Uh, Really excited to have a conversation with uh, Brett Hurt, uh, who is the CEO of Data.World, Uh, the co-owner of Hurt Family Investments, founder of Bizarre Voice and Core Metrics, uh, Henry Crown Fellow at the Aspen uh, Institute, um, a (laughs) TEDxter, a dad and a husband, most important of all, uh, and part of the Austin 100 and a friend. Brett, welcome to Race and Democracy.
1: Thank you so much, Peniel. It's a really... Big pleasure to be on here. So thank you so much for including me.
0: You know it's Black History Month, and you know I've I've known Brett for a couple of years, and this past year I've reread your open letter to tech CEOs and leaders and the importance of diversity. Really important letter. But I want to talk about um, tech, uh, Black History Month, uh, the wealth gap. Um, really, your own journey too. You know you're part of different groups. Uh, white Men for Racial Justice. Uh, in the aftermath of last year, you know, the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, the Black Lives Matter 2.0 protests, uh, the most racially divisive presidential election in American yeah. history. And really, just even recently, we think about three Wednesdays uh, in January last month. Um, the 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 assault on the Capitol, the white supremacist assault on January sixth, the impeachment, the second impeachment of former President Trump on January thirteenth, and then finally the the inauguration of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, the first Black woman uh, and South Asian woman VP, and then Amanda Gorman's "The Hill We Climb" poem. So there's a lot to digest here. It really is. Uh, and and the first thing I want to um, talk to you about is really your own journey, because I think this letter to tech CEOs and uh, on the importance of diversity, which is available on Medium for everyone, uh, really important letter. Uh, tell us how you got to this point where right now you really think about racial justice as being so central to what you're trying to do as an entrepreneur and just, just, as, a, just as a person.
1: Great. I'm, I'm happy to do that. There's a lot to unpack there. So my own journey as um, a young boy growing up in Austin is that for the most part, I was oblivious to race disparities. Um, I, let, me just, let me just start out with kind of how I'm so lucky to be on your podcast and, and I really enjoyed working with you on a number of different initiatives and hold you in incredibly high regard. And I'm absolutely amazed and happy for you with how well your book did last year. So let me just start out with that and just compliment you as both a leader for the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy, as well as just getting such high achievements on your book. That has to be a dream come true. As you know, I have my own book out called Entrepreneur's Essentials, which is available for free on Medium. Uh, com and you know it just i know how much time goes into that and it just has to be a dream come true for you so I've just my kudos and and gratitude to you and, and and what you do um so growing up in austin you know, i was very lucky in having a mom who really believed in me from from birth and and when i was four years old i was taking apart Pong and trying to put it back together and figure out how it worked, as opposed to just be satisfied with playing the game. And that led her to think I may be interested in computers. And she bought me my first computer when I was age seven. And my grandfather taught at UT Austin his entire career. He taught very advanced mathematics courses. He grew up during the great depression, the oldest son in his family, his father deserted the family during the great depression my great grandfather never heard from him again and he became kind of a bit of the patriarch right he had to help his mom raise the other children they didn't have any money you know faced starvation and paid his way through ut austin where he literally would tutor people on courses that they that he hadn't even learned so he would like learn the course really quickly to be able to teach them and tutor them. And that's how he paid his way through school. He was very, very smart. Um, and you know, really quizzed me constantly as a kid on mathematics. And when I was about in, you know, sixth or seventh grade, I tested about 12th grade math level and it was because of him, it wasn't always comfortable to be around him right? <laughs> because he was constantly quizzing me on that. But he, he, along with my mom, saw this interest in computers and thought that that would lead to my interest in mathematics. And he was right, that turned out to be my best subject. And so my mom and him you know, kind of teamed up, bought me my first computer, and my mom then learned how to program with me, which is really interesting, right at age seven. Um, and I was born in Austin, which, I had UT Austin, which bought a lot of the original Cray supercomputers. It was a Beverly Hillbillies type of story in that UT literally has lots of land that oil was discovered on, which gave them the endowment and the money to be able to buy these Cray supercomputers, attracted the researchers, birthed the tech, tech industry here. Of course, I was oblivious to all this as a kid, right? And... What that meant was that I was a great beneficiary of people that came before me. And that's how my mom was able to drop me off at user group meetings for programming when I was 10 years old. Like that existed in Austin in 1982, I was born in 72. Mm -hmm. So very unusual, like really lucky in the privileged background and the privileged city that I had been born into for what would ultimately become my career. And, you know, I've started six businesses now and have been very fortunate as an entrepreneur. Um, Currently, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Data.World, which is a B Corporation. It's my first B Corporation. It's been named in the top 10% of B Corporations for the last um, three years in a row. I think it's uh, the most ambitious company that I've started. It's now the world's largest collaborative data community. Data sets on everything you can imagine, you know, from racial issues and disparity to poverty, to climate change, to cancer, to COVID-19. If you can dream of it and it's data, it's there.
0: This is a great segue, uh, Brett, in terms of with data.world, but with you having founded all these businesses, let's discuss the wealth gap um, and really what tech can do, the racial wealth gap, the racial income gap. But I'm really thinking about wealth and the lack of um, not just racial diversity in tech, but really the lack of um, having black Americans uh, you know, in tech, uh, both Silicon Valley in California, but also you know, you're a part, one of the Uh, Charter members, I think uh, of Silicon Hills right here in Austin. Um, What is the role before we dive into the details? What do you think? And you know, I know from uh, reading your 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 great piece in Medium, but not everybody has read it. What do you think the role, the responsibility of tech uh, wealthy entrepreneurs is in terms of? the wealth gap, but also just racial justice broadly. What do you think the role is, especially in light of the last year?
1: Yeah, so I want to honor the the moment that we're in. Um, so the the you know to to go back to your previous question, then I'll I'll answer that we're in a really interesting moment in the history of the country right now. As you mentioned, you know we have our first female vice president, who is also a Black American and also a Asian American. Um, We had Amanda Gorman give that incredibly electric um, speech, you know, poem in front of um, the nation. And I think I was watching, you she went from, you know, some like tens of thousands of Twitter followers to over a million that day.
0: On Instagram. I saw her when she went from she immediately after the poem got up to a million and then it was like 2.8 million and it might be 5 million now. It's just, it's incredible the power of, uh, I, I thought that was about the power, not just the social media and technology, but the power of ideas and humanity. Right. Uh, you know, it, really incredible and incredibly inspiring. Incredibly
1: inspiring. And, and so let me just let me just talk a bit about how I got here and why this is important to me. And then I'll address what I think CEOs should be doing in tech. Um, So, you know, so I was a product of a pretty privileged upbringing. My parents definitely were not wealthy, um, but they were entrepreneurs from the time I was born. They were more your classic lifestyle entrepreneurs. And, you know, I was in a household which recognized my talent early on and got me into programming. And that turned out to be you know, the dominant field. I mean, it it, it is true that nerds have kind of inherited the earth. You know, when I was growing up, there were movies like Revenge of the Nerds and things like that. And I was picked on a lot as a child growing up. So although I can never know what it feels like to be a black American, um, I certainly know what it feels like to be treated as the other. Um, I'm also Jewish. Um, which is another type of other, but, you know, growing up, I was picked on very heavily because I was doing something so different. I programmed over 40 hours a week from age seven to 21. And, you know, a a lot of other kids were playing outside and I was inside programming and people thought that was so weird. And when you're the other, um, people sometimes are mean and, you know, I wasn't playing football. I wasn't doing all those normal things. I did a little bit of that here and there. I, I definitely was athletic in some ways, but um, but I largely spent my childhood just programming, and that that led to uh, me having this real understanding of what it feels like. And I, I kept feeling like if only people knew who I am inside and stopped judging me for the outside, you know, we would have a better world. And I felt that way so much growing up. And some of the best connections I had growing up were on bulletin board systems, which were the early mediums of electronic communication, where literally we could communicate via computer, via text. I ran some of the early BBSs in Austin, And we could communicate without any judgment of what we looked like. I didn't know if I was communicating with someone that's male or female on the other side. I didn't Mm -hmm. know what their race is. I didn't know anything about their socioeconomic position. We were just having a brain-to-brain connection. And I Mm -hmm. love that. And And I talked about that to people as we connected online. I had some of my most meaningful connections on my bulletin board system um, because we were having that brain-to-brain connection, so I grew up with that as a framework. And then in tech, I became a successful entrepreneur working alongside great teams, but primarily, honestly, with people that that were a lot like me.
0: You know, they. they so basically, young young white men, young yeah, white. Yeah,
1: yeah. Primarily, I mean, and 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 not because there was any racist bone at all. I. I didn't have a you know a racist notion at all, um, but because I was kind of in this group of programmers that um, were primarily young white men. Now I didn't realize that that was because of a lot of historic oppression and even current oppression. I didn't realize that Austin was a segregated city at one point, and that's why we have East Austin. Um, and I didn't realize, you know, until 2020 that the median black family wealth in America is about one eighth to one tenth, depending on what statistics you look at of the median white family wealth. That was shocking to me to learn in 2020. I just couldn't believe it. I mean, it was just, you know, that's like a, a gut punch when, when you learn that, because, there's no way you can explain that wealth disparity than to look at the historic oppression that we've had, starting with slavery, then going through Jim Crow. And so that type of statistic compels you to act. And I just wish I had acted earlier. You know, I'm turning 49 on Valentine's Day this year. We're reporting <laughs> this before well, that. Happy, happy
0: early birthday. Thank but- you. You, you, you know, it's, it's it's interesting what you say about that um, uh, statistic can only move you because other people try to um, really explain away that statistic. Really, in my belief, uh, through basically eugenics oh, gosh, and scientific I, I guess, racism, guess, behavior yeah. and culture. And I know you, you know, and as somebody who's African American and you're you're Jewish American, we we've been victims, uh, of both of us. Uh, with systems of racial oppression historically in different ways and at times convergent ways, but what's so interesting is that you um, seeing that statistic and thinking to yourself, there's nothing else that can explain it. It really does show uh, something within you where you're 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 not. Um, you're not where a lot of white Americans truly are, mesmerized by these these this idea that there are sort of uh, cultural differences, we 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 you know ra- racial differences. We pathologize black people um, so we can explain away uh, the disparities. You know, you just mentioned one eighth to one tenth of income, but when you really humanize black people, you realize okay, these are systems and structures set up because you're not thinking to yourself, black people are somehow worse than, than white people. You know, you're just, you're saying, Hey, they, they are, they are, you know, you know, uh, they, they bleed the same red, uh, but they've had different historical circumstances and there's just different systems. So I do have to say, and, and I like that you say that, and I think that shows a lot, that says a lot about you, but one thing I have to say is that as a nation, we we are not yet there, (laughs) you know, I think that, that, that progress, uh, we, we would make a lot more progress if we, if we together saw data like that and said, "Oh, okay, that data shows me something's wrong with the systems and the structures," rather than saying, "Hey, these black kids need to study right. <laughs> harder," <laughs> and, and you know, value education, because really, honestly, that's the line we get. That really is, and it's an ab- it's an abhorrent line. Uh, me and you are are the same age, and I've heard it my whole life. Uh, sometimes even black people will say it, and uh, it's really unfortunate because it, it prevents us from um, really moving the needle and and really attacking these structures and these systems of inequality?
1: Well, honestly, when I hear someone say eugenics, and I haven't heard someone say that to me for a long, long time, um, but it makes me want to throw up. It, it, it literally just breaks my heart. Um, you know, all human beings are born with um, similar potential. I mean, there are differences that that uh, we have in terms of what are our innate callings in life? What's our true calling in terms of what our field is going to be? Um, are we going to find that true calling? One of the best books I've ever read is Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl, which he's a Holocaust survivor, survived four concentration camps, including Auschwitz, lost his entire family, and wrote this really just open heart book about what he learned about human nature and what really drives us. And the takeaway is that you have to live, you have to find what your meaning is in life and then live that to its fullest. And I know you're living your meaning and I know that I'm living my meaning. So first of all, just it's just that discovery process as a kid to find out what is our calling. And then it's the support structures that we have around us to to hopefully support us in that. I mean, my blog is named Lucky7.io. Lucky7, because it's a tribute to my mom who unfortunately passed away 10 years ago. It's a tribute to her for helping me find my passion at that age. And I named it, you know, Lucky7, you know, 10 years ago. I mean, I I, I named it that as a tribute to an amazing woman. My dad was also great. So I don't want to just leave my dad out of this, but my mom was really the driving force for, for technology. Um, my dad didn't really understand what I was doing growing up. He was an inventor of physical products, and everything I invented was virtual. Um, but, you know, so he he kind of he kind of picked on me a little bit on that. Like, I don't really know what you're doing, whereas my mom knew I was living my passion. But they were both great parents. I really want to honor that and and I miss them both. Unfortunately, he passed away as well. Um, So, you know, so I want to just uh, mention that um, the eugenics thing is truly offensive um, to me. I mean, that's that's as offensive as what people have said about Jewish people. and you know what I saw when I when I saw George Floyd die on camera, um, it truly broke you know my heart and so many people in the nation's heart. Um, but how I tried to relate that to other people is, I said, just imagine. Like I tried to relate that to the Jewish community, is I was like, just imagine if that was someone Jewish. And we're watching them die like that because they were Jewish, and how would that make you feel? Because some of my white friends were up in arms. I shouldn't even say white friends. Some of my white acquaintances were up in arms about the protest during COVID, and saying. And when you say up in arms, let's let's
0: let's let's chat about yeah. that. When you say up in arms in a negative way, Brett, like they're, they're you know what was their. What was there either be for inspiration with the in protests? a very
1: privileged way in the way of like we're in this COVID nineteen time, people were just critiquing um, all of these people that were protesting the lockdowns, and now they were conflating that with kind of whataboutism, um, which is what you see with like really diehard Trump supporters. They were they were conflating that. To say, and now here are these people of color out there, pro- and of course, there are white people also joining the protest, but now there are these people of color protesting um, during COVID and nobody's saying anything about it. And I th- I just thought to myself, that is such a privileged way to think. Because if it was your group, you know, whatever your group is. If it was a let's take it if it was a Trump supporter that was being killed, you know, on the ground by some diehard Democrat um, cop, how would we have viewed that if, if you were if you were in the Trump camp? I'm not in the Trump camp clearly, but you know, and I'm an, I'm a proud independent voter. I've voted for as many uh, Republicans as I have Democrats, and I really try to maintain the centrist position. It's part of the reason I love. Joe Biden so much as I really do believe that he says what he means when he wants to create unity. And I think our country needs it more than ever, but it was, it was really offensive to me. And I tried to relate it to white acquaintances on those terms to say, you, you need to think about how you would act in this moment. If it was whatever identity group you are in, that was, literally being choked to death, knee on the neck, in broad daylight on camera just because of their identity group um, and you know because of historic racism in the country. So it really bothered me. That really, really bothered me. And the eugenics movement is just another way to kind of explain away a problem. Um, and it's and it's just it's just it makes me want to throw up. When I see things like that, and now let's let's talk let's talk about um,
0: where where we're at in terms of the the my my larger question about what what do you feel the responsibility of of tech, including your own personal responsibility, professional responsibility, is in light of all these events um, that happened this past year.
1: So I I feel like the more educated you become on these issues and this this historic, you know, kind of oppression in our country, the more it should move you to act. And the more privilege you have, whether that was given to you or earned or a combination of both. And I'll tell you, you know, when I got married, I had $1,000. My wife had $2,000. Our parents didn't give us any money. We worked very hard for what we have but there's no doubt that being white in america opened doors for me i was oblivious to that um you know i i was oblivious to it but but it was there there's no doubt it was there i mean it's just the way our country's been set up it was there Uh, but i've had a lot of grit and a lot of luck to get to this point and it gives me a platform now to create change and with you know with, uh, with, with uh, wealth comes great responsibility. And so now I can use that platform, the more educated I've become to say, tech has a responsibility to hire people that aren't just in their direct social network. Like if you just do a thought exercise, you say you've got one population, which has an eighth to a 10th of the wealth of another population. Well, forget about race for a second. What are the cultural differences going to be in the population that literally has an eight to 10 tenth of the wealth? There are going to be some cultural differences, right? We're all people, we're all human beings, but there are going to be some cultural differences. Your access to education is going to be dramatically different. Your access to a stable family support structure can be very different because. you know, you're, you're, you, you'll have parents, they're working multiple jobs. Um, the divorce rates can be higher. Um, you know, drug use can be higher. There's, there's a lot of bad things that happen in poverty versus um, societies and, you know, groups which have more wealth from the beginning. And the way our country was set up, it was set up for white people to have more wealth from the beginning. It started with land grants, and it went on and on and on through Jim Crow, oppression of voting. You know, We saw even oppression of voting just recently in Georgia in, uh, in you know, 2018 with Stacey Abrams and then her revenge yes. tour in terms of getting people out there to vote and creating access to the vote. And we just saw a historic win in Georgia on multiple fronts, both President, you know, former President Trump lose there as well as the two senators um, get elected, you know Warnock and, and Ossoff, um, which was incredible, right? I mean, I don't, I don't know if anybody really expected that. I didn't expect them both to win personally. I supported them both, but I didn't expect that both would win.
0: Well, now because, because of that victory, they're gonna, Biden's 1.9 trillion, um, uh, you know, pandemic package, it seems like it's going to pass through a bu- budget reconciliation process. So that was I think when we think about the three Wednesdays in January of this year, uh we should also never forget the Tuesday, uh January 5th, because Warnock really is um an extension of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., you know, literally and figuratively, he he's the he's the pastor at Ebenezer Baptist Church, Dr. King's uh Yes. Yeah. Um Form a pulpit, and and also Asif would not have won. Thirty three year old, very progressive, um, but but really uh, without Warnock, you know Warnock and Asif um, sort of revived aspects of the Black Jewish coalition and alliance that was you know a real big part of the first half of the twentieth century, really deeply up into the sixties, you know civil rights struggles. So I think that's really important to remember the, the impact of January 5th, as well as the subsequent three Wednesdays. Right. And again, the, you know, Warnock, the first black Senator elected out of the state of Georgia in American history.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a historic achievement. We're living in historic times and there is a, um, generational change occurring in the country right now. It's hard to see that when things are close and the country's so divided, but we are in the midst of change and we're in the midst of a change to America becoming more American. That's what I love the most about the way that Biden and Harris speak about it is that we've created the most diverse cabinet in history. Well, look, the, the power of America is in its diversity. I mean, if, if America was just white male, it would be super boring. You know, a lot of what we love culturally, what we love from a, you know, restaurant and literature and architecture and, you know, company and so many aspects of the melting pot that we have here, that is what makes America American. And frankly, we are almost all immigrants here. You're only not an immigrant if you're Native American, (laughs) Right. So I'm an immigrant, too. We are all immigrants here. (laughs) And the whole white construct was really invented out of power. If you went back, you know, 400 years in history and you asked people what race they were, they would say they're English or Scottish or um, French. They wouldn't even know what you're talking about when you said white. That concept didn't even exist um, hundreds of years ago. That was an invented concept um, to kind of unify power. And so the more you learn about this, the more it moves you to say, okay, I have a responsibility to break out of just the groups that I'm most, um, uh, present in because of the fact that that's the way the country has been set up to get in other populations and pull them into tech and create, um, you know a, an abundance of possibilities there which eventually makes this wealth gap go down to the point where hopefully we erase it entirely and race just becomes a you know afterthought as opposed to something that people really think about and use as a dividing mechanism that's that's the country that i want to live in you know my good friend stephen DeBerry laid it out so well He gave a very good TED speech a while back. I would encourage everybody to look at it on why the east side of cities usually um, is where the poor people live. And it's actually because of the way the winds blow and pollution. And so the winds tend to blow to the east. And so the country's been set up and cities have been set up in a way where the east side of cities are where the poor people are um, and we're segregated because that is where the winds blow the pollution. How, how, how sad is that? But that's, but that's the fact. You know, that's just the way things were set up. And, and so the more, it's kind of like the matrix, like taking the red pill, the more and more you realize the way that society has been set up, the more you start to question the structures around you and question why are the majority of people in tech white male? Why are so many, uh-huh. so so few even females, on board of directors and in tech. Um, why is it- and, and that that's what I, I want us to uh,
0: drill deep down in that, in the Austin sense, uh, Brett, uh, and really even push you on the, the politics. When you say, um, you said you're a centrist and me, you have gone back and yes, forth on yep. this before. Um um, I mean, I think my my listeners know <laughs> I wouldn't call myself a centrist. I, I definitely believe that Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s building a beloved community. But one of the things I do in my new book is talk about King as a revolutionary, always nonviolent, but always a revolutionary. He wanted us to redistribute justice. That meant redistrib- redistribution of wealth and, and privilege. It didn't mean we were all going to live um, in the same house <laughs> and sleep on the same bed. It meant that we were going to have um, you know, equity and equality and that we were such a, to be a, a good country before even being a great country, we had to end things like poverty and homelessness, things that we actually have the resources to end. We all know we do. We don't have the political right. will. So when you say centrist and we talk, think about Democrats and Republicans, especially now in light of January 6th and QAnon yes. and re- representatives that we've seen that are fomenting violence, including the former president of the United States. Um, How how can, what is, I want to ask you, Brett, what is centrism in this new normal? Yeah. What is centrism in the new normal we have? Because I I know there, there are, uh, you know republicans like nelson rockefeller jack Kemp, who used to talk about poverty talk about different things even though rockefeller also did the drug laws and stuff so it's a mixed legacy but certainly i think he cared for people cared about people um but what are we to do in this new in this new normal you know mitch mcconnell right. supreme court packing that the right. republicans su- successfully did by blocking merrick garland um uh, really no no more no- norms and rules and procedures Uh, again, the QAnon, the Trumpism, the MAGA, the violence, the racism. What is centrism in this new political context? Because I know what it was before, but what is it now?
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a very good question. I've been asking myself the same thing. Um, I am clearly not a Trump supporter or a Trumpian supporter. And what I mean by that is that, you know, the, the more radical that the faction of the Republican Party becomes, with the most recent example being Marjorie Taylor Greene. And thank goodness that they at least voted her off the committees, but it was actually pretty close. It was too, that was too close for comfort too. I think 199 Republicans voted to keep her on the committees, you know, the budget and education committees. That, that stuff is very disturbing to me, both as a Jewish person, as someone who cares about racial equity, um, who cares about bringing out the best in America, that is not the best in America. There is no part of America that should be um, embracing conspiracy theories or space lasers from Jews starting forest fires in California. Oh my I told Levi I mean, something about that last night and he started laughing hysterically because it was just so silly to him as an 11-year-old. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually serious, Levi. That's actually what they believe. Um, and he just couldn't believe it. It was just like, uh, you know, comedy. But I mean, the things that people have believed about um, Black Americans has also been comedy in a very sad way, too. I mean, you brought up eugenics. That's, 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 like I said, that makes me want to throw up. So, so I, here's what I believe, Peniel. I believe that we need two strong parties. I desperately believe that. I don't believe that our country can just be governed by a single party. I don't think that's healthy. I think that the best, the best things I've seen in business come out of fierce debate and come out of multiple perspectives. And, you know, data.world, one of the things I cover in my open letter on the importance of diversity in tech, and I talk about my journey in there and lay out my recommendations, is that data.world now is 54% either female or people of color. I mean, that's a great achievement in tech. And 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 it starts the baseline with us being around 83 people for when we're 800 people and et cetera. So it starts this, you know, it's early enough on where it can have a cumulative growing impact. But I want to be really clear. I am not um, at all in favor of Republicans that turn their eye the other way on the character issues and the conspiracy issues of a faction of the Republican party. But I believe that the centrist in the party are mainly found in a group that I'm heavily involved in called No Labels. And No Labels has 56 Congress people in it and it has 16 senators in it. And what passed over December for that COVID-19 relief bill, which was over $900 billion, that came out of no labels, that came out of the Problem Solvers Caucus. So there are members of Congress and senators who still want to find some level of cent- central kind of...
0: Well- Well, and I think you've got the Lincoln Project uh, has done very good work um, talking about justice and and sort of trying to recapture the soul of the Republican Party. I think we need multiple parties, uh, Brett. I just think that-
1: I don't think we need a Patriot Party, though, under Trump, (laughs) just to be clear.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I think we we need multiple parties. But on some levels, if we had multiple parties, you think about different um, systems in Germany and other places where there are multiple parties. Israel, too- where people have to do coalitions, you know. So uh, there could be far right and what some people call far left. Me personally, I don't think AOC is uh, far left. I think we don't have a conception of what a true far left party is in the context of American democracy, uh, because we we don't we don't have um, we 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 don't have those parties anymore. I mean, I still think even the Green New Deal. Is is basically, uh, uh, and even what Bernie Sanders was talking about, they're basically aspects of the the state liberalism of the 1930s and 40s, maybe ramped up a few degrees, but there's still there's no there's no fundamental party in the United States that that has mainstream cachet that wants to sort of reorder social economic relations in a way that we could truly call it a far left party. But what I'm interested in is when you think about Democrats and Republicans now, what do we do uh, when, again, 74 million people voted for Trump, uh, 81 million people voted for Biden, but the 74 million who voted for Trump, maybe some have been led astray, uh, not gonna label all of them, but the, the, the president And the policies were racially divisive. Uh, They were redistributive upwards from the bottom up. When we think about the 2017 tax bill, Uh, they were anti-immigrant, anti-LGBTQIA. They were interested in voter suppression. Um, these These aren't real core tenets of American democracy. What do we do if we have a whole party that is not interested in democracy, but is interested in militias, is interested in 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 terror is interested in electing folks who are interested in conspiracies that are anti-Semitic that are racist. What do we do? And that's what I and it, you know this connects with tech in a big way because of Facebook. But, you know, you're a part of this whole ecosystem, I, I am, yeah. one of the one of the thought leaders. Uh, Brett, what do we do in terms of leadership where we've got, you know, tech and Facebook and Twitter, they were allowing the president to do disinformation. And I don't know who should be policing this, but some of us, there has to be rail guards for democracy because there are rules, right. right? There are rules. When you start up your your B Corp, there are rules. And we have to play by the rules if we're going to have a civil society and a, and a just society. So what, do, what what do you think about that in terms of really the role yeah. of tech
1: there too? Well, so so I mean, I don't know the 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 macro answer of what do we do. I know that what I can do is I can support bipartisan causes. I'm very involved in APAC. I spend a lot of time on the, on that. A lot of people look at APAC unjustly as a right movement, and it's not. I've seen as many Democrats as Republicans speak at APAC. I mean, it's the only event I've been to where you can see Nancy Pelosi, Chuck Schumer present, and then followed by Pence, right? I mean, there's no other event in the country, probably, that you can see that. Um, and it's because they're focused on a unifying issue, and there are unifying issues even now, um, and hopefully, you know, racial equity becomes a unifying issue because it should be. That is that is the best of America. I mean, we we have all been, you know, lucky to be born here and have the opportunity, but some people are far luckier than others because of the way the systems were set up. So what I can do is I can leverage my wealth, I can leverage my influence, and I can fight for a more just society and I can support more bipartisan um, legislation and lawmakers to fight for that, but they they will lose me for sure if they um, if they embrace conspiracy theories or embrace racist ideals or you know any 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 aspect of that. But I don't see that in the problem solvers caucus, and I don't see that broadly in the APAC community. Um, I see this level of like we want to work together. Now, let me let me address something because I've thought about this a lot. Those seventy-four million Americans that voted for Trump, we cannot write them off as racist. Um, you may say that uh, that by voting for Trump they're not anti-racist. Maybe you'd be be right in saying that, but unfortunately, there's a lot of people that believe they've kind of neutralized politicians and they neutralize them to the point where they've said, well, they're all corrupt, they're all liars. And so we just, we're just voting for the policies that benefit us most. They're voting in their personal self-interest. And a lot of them haven't taken the educational journey that I've taken. They just haven't. So they're, they're, they're ignorant. Of the way the country has been set up, there's ignorant as I was growing up as a kid here and being taught history in a very whitewashed way. Um, you know, we didn't dive deep on slavery when I was a kid, and we didn't dive deep on Jim Crow. I, I went to an elementary school that was called Robert E. Lee Elementary School here in Austin. That didn't even register with me. I mean, I'm sure if, uh, I'm sure of bl- black black American growing up there, and I had many black American. Friends, there, um, I'm sure it registered with them. It didn't even register with me. I just thought, well, he's just some general. I didn't even think about the Civil War and 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 what that was all about. And it, it got renamed a long time ago, well over a decade ago. But um, you know, I and and look, I'm embarrassed that I didn't think about that. But the reality was that I was born into the majority, and my skin color is white, and so. I didn't think about it because I didn't have to think about it. And then, as I grew older and I got more exposed, and I'm a very curious person, and I'm constantly trying to study things, I was very singularly focused on just getting my footing in career for for most of my life. And um, and now I'm in a different phase in my career, and I've really opened up my learning and got involved in groups like white men for racial justice and got involved in the Aspen Institute and the Henry crown fellowship. And, and it's really opened my eyes to what the systems have been and, and why I have been as lucky as I've been. And that doesn't take away the grit element. I would tell an entrepreneur, they're going to have to work their butt off to be a successful entrepreneur period. But, um, but it did stack the deck in my favor, and when you find out that the deck is stacked in your favor, you can either blindly go along with that and not do anything about it and just be happy that the deck is stacked in your favor, or you can say, no, we'll have a better America if there's more equity overall. I mean, look, last year was the, first, was, was the 100 year anniversary of women having the right to vote. How crazy is that? You know, well, yeah, and
0: and that's that's white women. I know uh, Brett, that's white black women, women that's right. uh, on mass. Not until nineteen sixty five. You know, I I want to um, I want to, as we're 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 nearing the end of our time, I want to ask you about you know what's going on in Austin, and what do you think the role of tech data dot world should be. In terms of uh, closing the wealth gap in Austin, but more than that, really building a new generation of entrepreneurs. You know, we've got so many um, African American entrepreneurs here in the city, but also a feeder to University of Texas at Austin, Houston, Tillotson, these different schools. What what can be done? What can Tech do um, to 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 transform? Um, Austin from being this racially and economically segregated city, this very wealthy city, but one that's very, very racially and economically segregated to really being a model uh, for for
1: for the nation. Well, I think I think that, uh, you know, you and I have been spending a lot of time together on the Center for the Study of Race and Democracy. And and I'm very confident that uh, that you're going to be able to really take that to a much more elevated level. And I've been proud to help you in that. And and I want to thank you again for helping me on my open letter to tech, tech CEOs and leaders on the importance of diversity. You know, I, I ask eight friends to review that and give me input. And I want to honor that out of the eight friends I asked, you spent the most time on it, right? And here I am, you know, spending spending a lot of time with you. And so so we've developed a really good friendship Um and I'm really proud to help you with the center. I think that there's a reason to have a lot of optimism about Austin um, when it comes to tech. There's a huge movement underway for people in tech to go to Beyond Diversity Courageous Conversations, which you know Glenn Singleton mm-hmm. founded, and, and I, I know that you're very well aware of that. Um, that gets people aware of what the issues are and, and to walk a mile in other people's shoes. Um, So there's, there's a, there's a lot of momentum from that aspect, you know, Steven Strauss, I was just on the phone with him earlier this morning and, uh, Steven, you know, was the one that initially introduced me to beyond diversity. Um, and he's been, he's started a, uh, a group that really got startups to sign on early in on being much more diverse and really leading the way in diversity, um, Data.world was one of the first groups to sign up, one of the first companies to sign up as a proud B Corporation. Um, there's a lot more B Corporations in Austin. Like us starting as a B Corporation has helped create that change here. So you've got a lot of momentum going in this direction. Of course, our mayor has really, um, Mayor Steve Adler, who's a good friend, has made a big effort here. Um, but I think that. What happened with George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Amada Aubrey and so many others in 2020 um, has opened up a lot of people's eyes to this systemic, um, you know, history of oppression and the wealth gap. And I think you're going to see tech get much more involved. And I and and I see that Austin is becoming a leader in that. But we have a long way to go. It's going to take it's going to take time to create more equity. um, It's it's not going to happen overnight. It's a very big challenge uh, because of how long the inequity has existed and how the systems have been set up. And so it's it's a journey that I think more and more CEOs are going to sign up for and fight for. I can tell you that in my history in Austin, I've been an entrepreneur here a long time. I can't remember another time when I've heard as many white CEOs as well as CEOs of color talking about this and doing really tangible things in this area to help correct these inequities. And that, that's exciting to me. You know, it it is, it is back to the original MLK saying that, um, you know, the moral arc of justice is long, but ultimately bends bends towards, uh, been toward, been towards, towards justice. Um, so, I think we're getting better and better, but we've got a long way to go.
0: All right. We'll close with that note of optimism, Brett. Uh, we've been having a discussion with Brett Hurt, who's the CEO of Data.World, uh, the co-owner of Hurt Family Investments, uh, founder of Bizarre Voice and Core Metrics, Henry Crown Fellow uh, at the Aspen Institute, um, a TEDxer when we think about <laughs> TED Talks and the TED Conference, um, a dad and a husband, and... Um, you know, a friend and, uh, it's been great talking to you about tech and racial justice. And hopefully this is just the, the real start of something really, really big where Austin, uh, becomes a model, uh, for the United States and the world in terms of, um, confronting these issues and really building, uh, more justice and equity, uh, for all people. Well,
1: you, you and I are brothers in arms on this, and I really appreciate our friendship and, um, you and I are just getting started, right? There's a, there's a, there's a long journey ahead, um, but it's a journey which ultimately ends with beauty in the streets, people dancing, people being happy together. Um, and we've got to keep that in mind. You know, America becoming more American America living up to those original ideals. Absolutely. We're, we're building the beloved community right here in Austin. Exactly. Thanks so
0: much, my friend. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode, and you can check out related content on Twitter at Peniel Joseph, that's P-E-N-I-E-L-J-O-S-E-P-H, and our website csrd.lbj.utexas.edu, and the Center for Study of Race and Democracy is on Facebook as well. This podcast was recorded at the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you.